Hey, welcome back to The Craft, where we explore what we're learning about the creative process. I'm Colby, and I'm here with my friend Carter. And today we're talking about some lessons from Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. Yeah, so today we've got a little bit different schedule than usual. So this is going to be a book review, which I think, right, this is the first one we've done. Yeah. And this is going to be something that we do occasionally. We're always talking about what we're reading, which is kind of one of the, I don't know, that's a common just jump starter for our conversation. And a lot of the craft is just translating our conversation from what we were sending voice memos back and forth to recording this. And so it's a very, it's something that we do all the time. And so we're going to kind of adopt that practice for the craft. And so today I'm excited to hear about deep work. It's a concept that I've been familiar with before. Uh, but Colby has had a complete Cal Newport deep dive, deep work, deep dive into Cal Newport. And so I'm excited to, yeah, hear what you have to say today. Our format is going to be kind of a summary. I'm going to get Colby, Colby's going to, for us, pitch the book. And then we're going to talk about some key takeaways and application and then kind of a favorite quote, a memorable quote. So this is going to be the format that we typically use for book reviews. And so again, we'll be doing that later on when we talk about other books. So with that said, Colby, you want to take us into deep work? Yeah. So like you said, I kind of got on this kick this summer of just reading all of the Cal Newport books or not all of them. I read deep work, digital minimalism, world without email. And I started listening to his podcast, deep questions. So definitely recommend that after you listen to this, go check out that show, follow it, support him. And you can check out his work too. And his website, calnewport.com. But um, yeah, I just kind of dove into his ideas this summer a lot and really enjoyed them. And so I've been just swimming in these different kind of books and topics, and I'm excited to dive into it. So I think before we get into this episode, I thought it'd be helpful to just read his bio real quick from the back of the book to kind of give some context about who he is, and then we can dive into the summary. Good. Nice. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, as well as a New York Times bestselling author who writes about the intersection of technology and culture. He's written seven books, including Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, which have been published in over 35 languages. He's also a regular contributor to national publications such as The New Yorker, New York Times, and Wired. So yeah, like I guess you want me to dive into the two-minute summary? Yeah, why don't you sketch kind of the broad outlines of the book for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, Man, I'm super excited about this. So really, I think later we're going to talk about a world without email and digital minimalism, but really each book stacks on top of each other. But Deep Work is one of the core books that he's written. He's also written uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You and some older books before that about like being a good college student, essentially, uh, or being a good student in general. But Deep Work is kind of ties together so many of the other ideas that I think he pursues And really big picture, the first half of the book is about the concept and the second half of the book is about the application. And really the whole big idea of the book is that the world, the new economy is increasingly rewarding high-skilled workers and superstars and owners who have capital to pour money into high-skilled workers and superstars. And in this book, he's really going to just talk about how to become a high-skilled worker, how to become a superstar at your job um, in order to... And in order to do that, you have to perform at an elite level and in terms of both quality and speed. And that requires working deeply, focused, 
um, without distraction and pushing yourself to your cognitive limits. And this is not the kind of work that happens accidentally. I mean, that's really the idea of the book is like to get great and master something, you have to focus and engage deeply and put distractions aside. And that's why I think this book really ties in so directly to digital minimalism, which we'll talk about another day and a world without email. Like it's all kind of centered around this goal of focusing and digging deeply into, into a hard task. And, um, I think that really ties in with what we do talk about here on the craft. Cause we really strive to, um, try to find out what does it mean to master a craft? What does it mean to become really excellent at something? It's not from a place of arriving, but from a place of pursuing. And so this book really got me inspired and excited to keep pursuing that excellence and that depth that I think we both are drawn to. Okay, great. So, you know, following right up on this, deep work, the ability to kind of focus for prolonged periods of time, he's trying to argue, okay, this is something that's becoming increasingly rare. Is that part of the argument? Yeah, he the first kind of ideas are one, it's becoming more rare. It's also becoming more um valuable at the same time. So it's not just rare as in like no one's doing it anymore, but it's also increasingly valuable. And the reason he talks about kind of the shift of the economy. So you have this increase of automation and AI and different things that are kind of sim- removing a lot of um I don't know, middle or lower class roles or jeopardizing some, some people's jobs and creating a gap between people, like people who can work with complex machines and get value out of them and people whose jobs are in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. So that creates a gap essentially between very high paid and highly difficult jobs and very low paid jobs or jobs that are paid decently are being removed by that technology. If that Mm, makes sense. Yeah. Um, which that's probably a bigger can of worms than I can even know much about to like dive into. I don't totally understand all of that, but the, the general idea is that knowledge work is becoming more like if you can develop skills that are in that first category of pulling complex value out of machine or pulling value out of complex machines. And, um, of course this is not saying that only valuable jobs are found in technology. That's not the point of the book at all. But I think the whole idea of like the shift in the economy in general is that essentially he's just saying it's going to become more competitive and knowledge workers will have to push themselves to be more, um, to produce more value in order to, um, you know, provide for themselves and do so. That's kind that's of one interesting. of the core ideas. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know if I didn't know. So I was familiar with deep work. Like yeah. that was the one that I had associated with Cal Newport. I didn't know that there was this kind of specific economic reading that he was doing of like, okay, we've got jobs that are being automated. I'm thinking like the Kroger checkout line with the machines mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a job that requires deep work, like scanning. Um, and so those things are kind of the first things to get automated. And again, like you said, the whole economic movement is not really what we're interested in here, but it is interesting that he is placing this concept within a context where I would be interested, and this might be my next question for you, is deep work, 
Like, what is deep work? Is it, is it an hour? Is it two hours? Is it just being really focused? Is it stuff that we have done before? Like, would he say, I don't know, like a monk was doing deep work or like a the scholars in the 19th century before like the, you know, computers and these distractions? Is it something that he sees as historically contingent for today, this kind of work? Or is it something that, I don't know, is it some skill that's happened across time that he's identifying as, hey, even today, this is going to be even more important? Yes, that's a great question. And real quick, backing up, the economic aspect is only one piece. And so I don't want to misrepresent that. There's three chapters in the first section of the book and they are deep work is rare, deep work's valuable, deep work's meaningful. So rarity, value, cool. and meaning is kind of the three pillars that he talks about in terms of why should I care about deep work? And then the second half of the book is where he shifts to, okay, I've convinced you that it's meaningful, it's valuable. Let's talk about how you do it. And um, so I think that's where he answers the questions related to like, is it, does it look like being a monk? Does it look like doing it here and there? Does, you know, um, but here's the definition that he provides of deep work. You might as well just share it straight from him. Um, it's pro- pro- uh, professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. And then on the next couple pages, it says shallow work is non-cognitively demanding, logistical-style tasks, often performed while distracted. These efforts tend to not create much new value in the world and are easy to replicate. So I think that's helpful to just kind of see the contrast. Yeah, that is helpful. And so I'm even thinking like concrete in my day-to-day, like sitting down to read for an hour is a totally different task than doing the laundry, right? The laundry would be shallow work. I can listen to something. I can not be like mentally attentive there. It's something that I can accomplish. And like, if I wanted to do it in five minute bursts, I could, but like going back and reading something, like reading for five minutes, putting it down, going, doing something and coming back and like doing five minute bursts of reading is really difficult to do, to have your mind go in and out. So I I totally, is that, you think that's a good characterization? I think that's what he's trying to delineate. I think that's fair. Like it, it requires a focus that not all tasks do require. Checking your email, you can have music on in the background. You can be kind of, you know, of course, maybe some, maybe that's a bad example. Maybe some emails do require that focus, but still it's like tasks that you can do multiple things and you kind of, or you can do them lightly or they're more administrative. Those types of things are often not, not necessarily pushing you to your cognitive limits, you know? And I think reading a heavy book or writing an article or, you know, things of that nature definitely do. That makes sense. And I guess, I mean, the rare piece makes sense as well. And I'm wondering, do you think that it's more rare now? Like, I think the easy answer would be, yeah, we've got technology now. I mean, half of my, not half, 95% of the work that I do is on a computer. Maybe not 95. I do do a lot of reading that's hard, but I that like hardcover books, but um, a lot of readings on the computer, a lot of tasks are on the computer. Is it rarer now than before, or were there always distractions? I don't know. Those are some things I'm thinking about. Yeah. I, I think that there's still as many opportunities to do deep work today, but the chips are stacked against us. I, I feel like he dives into this a lot more in digital minimalism because sure, sure. he talks about how, 
He's like, you know, if it's hard for you to focus and it's easy to pick up social media, that's because it's engineered that way. <laughs> like people are working very hard, billion dollar industries working against you there. Um, so I think that it's definitely harder to do this type of thing. And I think that's why it's rare because it's not easy. And I think it's not even something that everyone is interested in, which is okay. Um, but I think his idea is if you want to make things of um, lasting impact and, and value, then sometimes that requires or if you want to really master a skill to a point which opens up um, new opportunities and capital and different things for you, um, then it's going to require investing deep work and, and um, yeah, it's hard to do. Yeah, it seems like there's a, definitely a practical, like pragmatic, this is going to help um, make you a more valuable employee. Like That definitely seems to be mm-hmm. part of it. Uh, and yes, but also it seems like there's that meaningful pillar that's also saying this is going to help you in whatever field of life. Like the tasks that are worth doing are tasks that are going to be demanding from you and they're going to ask something for you. And I guess recognizing that these tasks require a different sort of paradigm or approach or mindset, that seems like the first step. Just saying that, hey, these things are things that require deep work. There's a different kind of uh, state of work. There's a different approach. There's a different, yeah, paradigm that you've got to approach these things in. Yeah, I think that's well said, definitely. And so with that, uh, second part of the book, I think that's kind of sketched a little bit of the, okay, so deep work is this different kind of work. It's becoming a superpower, right? It's becoming rare. It's going to help you accomplish goals. Oh, yeah, you're going to say something? I think the like real quick, the last item there is just it's so meaningful. And Good. he has he breaks it down by um, three categories, uh, psychological, philosophical, and I want to say I might have actually gotten there wrong. I think he did. He might have done neurological, philosophical, and psychological, or maybe there was a third one. But essentially, the biggest one that stood out to me was really uh, the philosophical one, the idea he dug into this, this study that was really interesting that basically showed that pursuing excellence in a craft and in like specifically in the trades, um, kind of was a way that people were almost like replacing like a sense of sacredness or pursuing something greater outside of themselves kind of that has been a bit lost in modern culture. And it was kind of interesting to just hear him talk about how there's some sort of meaning and value in doing this kind of work that is not shallow and it's it's not as easy as scrolling Instagram. It's digging in and trying to create something new. And I am not going to do a good enough job here of explaining that whole story, but he really dug into what they did in that research um, and the big takeaway was that there's a meaning that people find in doing something that is not easy, that pushes themselves to their limit, but then comes and creates something new. And it almost reminds us of our need for something greater than ourselves and for a sacredness for God or, um, yeah. And so I think that was really cool for me to read, to just see, um, that there's, maybe not the ultimate meaning, but there's meaning found in the work and in pursuit of something greater than just whatever's easiest, you know, like there's, there's meaning found in the toil. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's something that we've talked about before too. Like art specifically is asking a lot from you and there's going to mm-hmm. be that friction. So the same way, like a weightlifter can't just go lift two pound weights. Like you've got to, you've got to start lifting heavy weights. Like that's where growth is. I mean, it's so, it's yeah, funny. Like right. the reminder piece I think is huge because we know this. It's like, is it like, what, what gives you more satisfaction? Maybe satisfaction is not the right word, but if you go buy a, a Big Mac or you spend time, you go to your local butcher, you get your uh, ground beef, you spend all day, you get the charcoal ready, you're using a recipe, you're preparing, you're taking some lettuce from the garden. Like these, it's not easy, right? It's not, here's a buck, here's a burger. There's something else going on. There's all sorts of things we do like that. Right, you you're out working in your landscape in your front yard. Right, you're building a patio. You're doing these things. What's meaningful? It's the stuff that is exacted a lot from you, and that because mm-hmm. part of you gets mixed in with it. Um, you know, you 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 become part of this work in a way. But yeah, I think that's a cool reminder because sometimes I think we can divorce that when we're looking for efficiency or we're looking for a way to streamline our work and make things faster and quicker and easier, right? And make these systems and operations protocols that are going to like make things quote unquote easy, right? I think we get, I think sometimes our work can be like, okay, if it's hard and difficult and frustrating and long, then I must be doing something wrong. Like there, there must be a problem. But I think deep work saying, no, like you, that's part of the deep work, sitting with those, working through those, recognizing those that they're part of, like that's part of the meaningful project. Yeah, there's something that's, I think he does talk about throughout throughout his ideas in general as a whole, he talks about the need for rest and breaking things down. And he, I will say, my only pushback to that would be, there's like, there's deep work and then there's, you know, I would I would recommend this recipe of read Deep Work and then read Effortless by Greg McEwen because they're not polar opposites, but Deep Work is like push yourself to your cognitive limit, and then Effortless is like but do it easily. You know, like it's this I was really nice about like yin and yang kind of thing of like heavy and light. But they actually have a podcast interview where they talk Greg McEwen and oh, Cal really? Newport where they talk and they say that one of the things that Cal Newport said was that he really want he thought hard about how to come up with the title for deep work. And he chose deep work as a term rather than hard work or other terms, because there's this kind of, we like to think of hard work as like a good thing, but it's not got to be hard to be valuable and difficult. You know what I mean? Like there's or difficult in the sense of pushing yourself to make something valuable. Um, well, that's a great think, distinction. So I just, I feel like it's just because something's hard, doesn't mean that it is deep work and you're pursuing depth. It could just be that you like need a break sometimes too. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so just because something's difficult, maybe you do need to change your system, right? I think that's great. And I and I was even as I was as I was saying that, I was like, don't. I almost said like effortless, or I almost said a word that was like, wait a second. Yes. I was remembering our conversation about it. Yeah, I think that's right because the deep really, I think, communicates meaningfulness. Yeah. Like work that's got substance to it, work that's got a gravitas to it, work that's not just right shallow. Like it, I don't know, I'm just I'm processing that right now. It's definitely not just hard work cuz you can you can work hard at shallow things. For sure. 
Mm-hmm. And work yes. that is shallow yes. can be difficult. Work that's deep that can be difficult. So I think you're right to bring us to, no, this is talking about something a little bit different, talking about the substance of the work, um, the quality almost, mm-hmm. in a sense of like what what qualities, what virtues define the work. Yeah, 100%. Um, can we dive into the second half now, the rules? Yeah, let's do it. So there's four chapters of this section of this book, and there's essentially four rules to how to work deeply. So the first one is work deeply, then embrace boredom, quit social media, and drain the shallows. And, um, you know, I obviously don't want to share everything from the book. I think you should read it, but <laughs> this is a can I Can I ask one right off the bat? Yeah, for sure. What's what's drain the shallows? I know. That's like the... I love that title. It's great. Um he kind of goes over a couple different things in that. Um, I'm trying to think how to break it down. So one thing that was kind of interesting, he, I would say he's talking to a couple audiences in this book. I think he's talking to knowledge workers in general. I think he's also talking to the academic community cause he's a professor. So maybe, you know, other professors and students kind of feels like those are the main audiences in mind. I could be wrong, but he, talking to knowledge workers he's he recommends asking your boss for a scheduled or for a shallow work budget so basically negotiating with your boss and explaining what deep work and shallow work is trying to determine how many of your tasks fall into the shallow bucket and which ones fall in the deep bucket and saying okay how many of my 40 hours a week get to be shallow work five ten because you get to a point where it's like if you're doing 50 percent shallow work is that really what you're worth being paid for like um and so that was an interesting concept. And then he talks about a couple other practical things like scheduling every minute of your day. He goes through his scheduling system, quantifying the depth of your activities, like I mentioned, becoming harder to reach, some tips on email that I think he kind of expounds on a lot in a world without email. And then talks about the most interesting would be fixed schedule productivity. So fixed schedule productivity is essentially just setting a hard limit at 5.30 every night. He doesn't work past that time. He leaves the office. Um, and it's pretty much just setting that boundary with yourself of when you are done working. Um, I think that was definitely an interesting idea that I got in general from this book was this idea of like, if you schedule with intention times of really intense focused work, then you can also schedule the rest of your time to be way more relaxed. And you don't always do deep work. Like I think he mentioned this maximum of like three to four hours. And it's interesting because I recently read that book rest by a Silicon Valley guy. And he talked about this four hours kind of rule. And I've read it. I think I've seen it pop up in two or three books recently. It's just this interesting thread that I'm finding. He talks a lot Mm. about deliberate practice in this book. The idea that comes to mind is an instrumentalist that's practicing in the, in the studio all day for hours on end, working on their scales failing, starting over, doing that, pushing themselves to that limit where they can't quite play it and everything feels a little bit uncomfortable. That's kind of this deliberate practice idea. And he talks about how um, there's this maximum of four hours. And I just think, but when you're a beginner, it might be a maximum of one hour a day. And so for the upper echelon of of people who are experts in their craft, they might be able to do three, four hours. But there's even for them, there's a limit of how much you can do every day. 
And so this idea of fixed schedule productivity in, impacted me because I also read this in Effortless recently, just this idea of setting an upper limit for yourself. Like I can't work more than this much every day is a healthy way to prevent burnout, to keep yourself sustained for the long term. And just because we're talking about deep work and working hard and focusing doesn't mean we just grind and push and burn out, you know? Good. Nice. Yeah, that totally makes sense, right? So it's like, okay, don't, I'm not going to work after 5.30. How is that connected to me doing deep work? Well, it's like almost a prerequisite for doing deep work. Like set limits, yeah. It's not just sitting down. It's like it's sitting down and being able to and having that, yeah, the bandwidth for it. If it's that four hours and you're just right putting your nose to the grindstone and you're not going to be able to do deep work, not this quality of deep work. And so that's mm-hmm. interesting because it's almost counterintuitive. Sometimes it's not just more time to work. There needs to be kind of a stop to it. That kind of stood out. Exactly. And then yeah. Also, I guess just the act of scheduling, like you scheduling out time that you're going to work distraction free. I mean, that seems like a huge piece of it. I think it is. It's he kind of takes the approach of if you budget, every dollar needs a, a job, as some people will say. And if you schedule, every minute needs a job. What are you doing with it? Whether I can't it's live like that. Working hard. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's well, and it's general. It's not like he really does every minute, but he kind of has a whole system for how he does his schedule that he's worked on for years, which is super interesting. And he has a he actually has this thing called like a time block planner that you can buy. And I haven't bought it, but I've like used the system for a couple of weeks now and just drawing it out on my own notebook. And um, it's super interesting. So you basically block out, you just write a line for each section of the day, you know, or for each hour of the day. And then you block out, you know, one line is 30 minutes of time. So you kind of have like two lines per hour and you just do um, time blocking. So you block like a two hour section for deep work here or 30 minutes for email lunchtime at 12, whatever it is. And um, yeah, it's an interesting system, but it's basically just setting intentions the day before or the morning of to say, here's how I'm going to spend my time. I think there's a ton of different ways. I think that's a little bit too far in the weeds to go today, but there's, I'll back up and share that there's kind of the first, the first practical advice he gives is to pick a philosophy of deep work that's like the first big rule in the second half of the book because there's you kind of mentioned like does it look like being a monk like is that what focus is like there's no technology and you're just focused um you're in solitude and so he kind of dives into monastic bimodal journalistic and then rhythmic these four different philosophies for how you do deep work so the monastic is like basically moving to the country, locking yourself away in a tower and doing your deep work, which most of us can't do. Uh, The next is bimodal. And that's, uh, he had some interesting examples. I think maybe Jung was one of them. There were a couple different people who, I believe it was Jung who would go out into the country and do some serious deep work and just distraction free and then come back to a very busy clinical practice, constantly on, getting distracted, do that back and forth. Right. And, um, so that's kind of the bimodal approach is like an, a, a more practical, like modern day example is there's some, a professor who works, you know, just like normal two or three days a week. And then occasionally will do 
three or four days where they put on an autoresponder on their email. They say, I'm out of office, but they'll still be in the office and they'll be working for three or four days, but they act as if they're gone. No emails, no knocking on the door, like do not disturb sign is up or whatever. And they are hyper-focused on their research, their reading, their writing, and they're untouched at that. They're, they're unreachable. And then they switch it off and they go back to their normal day and they're talking to students doing office hours and really active and busy. And so that's kind of the, the bimodal is interesting. Two notes, two notes on that. One, got to love Jung getting a popular culture reference always makes me happy. So shout out to that. And two, yeah, I really like that idea of the, the bimodal thing. I will say any of you professors out there who do not return after a week, <laughs> return and answer your students' emails. <laughs> Uh, there's definitely, this is funny because it's like in academia, there's definitely a value on deep work and people really try. A lot of professors are rightfully annoyed by email and stuff, uh-huh. which maybe we'll talk more about this with digital minimalism, how you like balance, like being like, res, you know, um, reciprocal with people and also not being like overwhelmed with having to respond quickly because it can totally become a distraction. Right. And so I definitely get, there's definitely a balancing act. I feel like that has to happen there because otherwise it wouldn't be bimodal. So that's cool. Totally. That's a cool example too of Jung going out, coming back. I feel like I do that during the day a lot. Right. Like if I'm gassed in the afternoon, yeah. I might go mow the yard or do the dishes or do something that like is shallow because I'm kind of gassed. I feel like that's, I feel like that's kind of you know, flip flopping from, a bit bimodal, you know, I, I, does that make sense? What do you think? No, I think so. I mean, I think that what he's describing is more so a, a more extreme approach where it's like you have days or weeks set aside okay. for deep work and you're not touchable. And then like you a have sabbatical. Weeks, almost like these mini sabbaticals. But then the other times you're like, you're doing tons of email, you're connected, you're having meetings and you're in that non deep work and your life is a lot more chopped up. Like most people's so, I mean, maybe it's a little bit different because I, I, I would say it's natural to have a push a push and pull each day of like there's deep work and then there's that shallow because because you have that limit that you can't just do eight hours of deep work. That's not, no one's doing that. Um, but I think there's an aspect to it. Then the other two real quick are the journalistic approach which he talks about, really interesting example, Walter Isaacson, who uh, has written several really, really well-known biographies and was also the uh, editor of Times Magazine at one point. And he would just, his roommates a long time ago mentioned that he would be able to just go up to his room and start typing on the typewriter, like furiously focused, writing his first biography, and then come back downstairs and chill out and just flip it on like a switch and then turn it back off. And he counts it the journalistic because one, that inspiration and two it, journalists, you know, are training themselves to constantly meet these tight turnarounds and deadlines and have to just turn it on and off on a spot to write really quickly. Um, but that's like one of the harder philosophies to pull off because it takes a lot of, it's hard to do deep work. Even if you have a lot of time, it's even harder if you got to turn on a dime. Um, and then the last one is the rhythmic, and this is, uh, we've talked about this before personally, the example from Seinfeld of building, uh, he was asked one time how to get better at jokes. And he said, you just make 
uh, a big X on your calendar every day and you just make a joke every day and you just get that chain going of X's on your calendar and you try not to break it. And really this philosophy was just more so like an overarching idea of try to do deep work every day, try to keep that chain going and keep it consistent or every day of the week, business day, whatever. But, um, so those are the philosophies right there. Is he saying like, find, find what works for you or is there kind of like an inclination? Like, what do you think? I think it's find what works for you because everyone's schedule is different. Their occupation is going to be different. Sure. And I think another practical example for like for most people probably listening to this is like we don't have time to become a monk and just go out for days and do it. We don't have time to retreat into the countryside. Yeah, right. Don't have the resources for that. We don't want to turn it on and off constantly because that's that's hard to do. But I think the best example I found, I think there was a guy named, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was like a student he had a job he had a kid he was super busy and so he would just wake up early and work from like 5 to 7 30 two and a half hours or maybe 6 to 7 30 and over time that was the most effective use of his time he wrote pages and pages of his dissertation um because he was a phd student and he was just grinding out work just working in the mornings and by the time he went to work he had already put in his deep work hours for the day so that's, I feel like a pretty practical example of like having that daily chain of deep work is finding either working earlier in the morning or maybe it's working later in the evening when things have quieted down, probably different for everyone. But I don't think it has to be one of those, exclusively one of those. It could be a push and pull between different ones. It could be, you know, something in between, but. So take, yeah. So take survey of your daily routine, right? This is a good place to start. Sounds like take survey, yeah. see, see where your time's going, um, and kind of start understanding how you're working. I feel like that's oftentimes like one of the applications that we talk about is just like take the take this paradigm and see what it looks like if you juxtapose it on your life right now. Like are, I'm sure you're doing deep work at some point. It's like so when um, what I wanted to do is kind of follow up with you about how the schedule's been going. You mentioned that you've kind of trying out does he have a specific name time block planning time block planning how's that gone it's been going really well um i'm loving it i'm still using it every day and some days i do it more detailed than others the days when i don't come in with a plan for how i use my time i normally feel a little bit overwhelmed and distracted all day or like what am i supposed to be doing right now and the days whenever i block out what i do even if i don't do it it just feels better because i had a plan and I can just shift, but it's like, I know what I need to accomplish today. I know what I need to work on. And, um, dude, this yeah, is, c- <laughs> this is good words for me. Cause I am by nature a scrambler, a yeah. scrambler during the day, but it's like, sometimes you just need to have the stuff blocked out or you're, you're totally right. It just feels more overwhelming. You know, if you don't have it in a place, maybe for you, it's a little different though. Cause I could see you not keeping up with a hour by hour schedule if you just don't want to go to that granular level like maybe you just should have maybe it's just writing down you know the the when you're going to do your deep work or what one thing you're trying to knock out that day and actually writing it out so you can see it and remember it and see that chain over time of like what you've done every day i think that's also useful to be able to i, I probably don't do it much but or i don't know that i've even done it once but it's 
something that you can go back and kind of track. Yeah. So adjusting the, I like that you said granular, adjusting the scope. Maybe mm-hmm. you're not doing hours of your day. Some people, I guess, I mean, sometimes that's the right move, but maybe you're doing the week. You know, I've got to get this stuff done this week. And maybe you're just doing the month. I mean, whatever's working, but I guess what Newport's trying to push us toward is understanding that you're going to have to schedule out time for deep work. Yeah. And I don't want to take the, take a bunch of time to explain his system, but it's super interesting. Like he has, he essentially writes out his annual goals and then quarterly goals. And then essentially your annual goal, goals determine what your quarterly goals are. Your quarterly goals determine what your weekly plans are. And then your weekly plans determine what your daily plans are. So it's kind of this trickle down of like, what do I want to do for the year? Okay, let me look at that in the quarter. And then whenever I sit down to plan my week, I'm looking at my quarterly goals. And whenever I sit down to plan tomorrow, I'm like, okay, what do I need to get done this week? So everything kind of goes back up the chain and ties into your annual goals. So you're not focused on, so you can just focus on the bigger picture. So it's a very, I think a super thoughtful system. And I'm always someone testing out different ideas like this and trying tweaking little things about scheduling and planning and productivity. But it's, it's been really good for me so far. Great. So we're at like around 40 minutes here. Um, before we move to the favorite quote, I feel like we've talked about, so we've talked about, I think one application has been the time blocking. Is that the one that you had written down or do you have a different one? I have some different applications written down, but I think I just want to leave on one, uh, which wasn't even written as an application, but I'm going to go for it anyways. It's focus on lead measures, not lag measures. So I had never heard this concept before, but a lead, a lag measure or metric is what we typically think about. So I'm working on a song. The lag metric would be I finish the song and it goes public. It's on Spotify. The problem with that is it might take me six months to do that. And so that entire six months, I'm just working and working and working. And there's, there's no like, oh man, I did that. There's no reward. There's no kind of accomplishment. Whereas a lead metric is something that you can quantify. Like it's a short term metric, something that you can do sooner that is pursuing the lag metric or the ultimate goal, but it's smaller. So the lag, so a lead metric is like, how many hours did I work on music this week? Or how many changes did I make to the song or something that I can kind of have more control over. And it's a super simple idea. Maybe another example would be just to make sure that I'm explaining it well, would be like, um, running the marathon is a lag metric, but putting in hours every week, running five miles a day or running five miles three times a week is your lead metric. You know, you are putting in you're just breaking down the the large goal into a smaller thing that you can celebrate today to kind of get that encouragement. Um, for me, it was like, wow, why have I not thought about this before? You know, because music does take so long and it's that lag. I'm always focused on like, man, it'll feel so good when this song is over, but it truly might take so long to reach that. And it's so unmotivating at times. But if I look back and say, oh, how many hours did I work on music this week? Okay, I can work on improving that and just see the progress, I guess. So that was really encouraging to me. Nice. Yeah, I think that's breaking down bigger goals into smaller ones, definitely part of that 
lead and lag. And I also think just having those benchmarks so you can track your progress, that seems to be a big part of it too. And so mm-hmm. those lead measures are, are helping inform what you're doing. And that's something that you can track. That's something that you can, you can see, like you said, I think that inspiration part of it's huge. Okay, man, I did. I got the time in this week. I did the reading this week. I haven't finished it, but I've, I've done that, right? It's a way to kind of orientate yourself. I think it's a way, like you said, to stay kind of motivated. Yeah. And I think we're so often just enamored with products, right? The output, it's finished, it's shipped, right? It's out. Like that's where it's where we're going for the finished product, but that could be, yeah, yeah, it can, it can kind of leave you scrambling and disorientated if you're not being able to understand, okay, what are the metrics that, that build that way? Yes. Well, um, I think it's time for the quote of the week. This is a bit of a long section. I picked it because I thought it would be really valuable to share. And it kind of ties into that craftsmanship and pursuing the sacred or something bigger than ourselves that I talked about earlier. So let me read this. There's nothing intrinsic about the manual trades when it comes to generating this particular source of meaning. Any pursuit, be it physical or cognitive, that supports high levels of skill can also generate a sense of sacredness. To elaborate this point, let's jump from the old-fashioned examples of carving wood or smithing metal to the modern example of computer programming. Consider this quote from the coding prodigy Santiago Gonzalez describing his work to an interviewer. Beautiful code is short and concise. So if you were to give that code to another programmer, they would say, ah, that's well-written code. It's much like as if you were writing a poem. Gonzalez discusses computer programming similarly to the way woodworkers discuss their craft in the passages quoted by Dreyfus and Kelly. The Pragmatic Programmer, a well-regarded book in the computer programming field, makes this connection between code and old-style craftsmanship more directly by quoting the medieval quarry worker's creed in its preface. We who cut mere stones must always be envisioning cathedrals. The book then elaborates that computer programmers must see their work in the same way. Within the overall structure of a project, there's always room for individuality and craftsmanship. 100 years from now, Our engineering may seem as archaic as the techniques used by medieval cathedral builders seem to today's civil engineers, while our craftsmanship will still be honored. You don't, in other words, need to be toiling in an open-air barn for your efforts to be considered the type of craftsmanship that can generate Dreyfus and Kelly's meaning. You don't, in other words, need to be toiling in an open-air barn for your efforts to be considered the type of craftsmanship that can generate Dreyfus and Kelly's meaning. Similar potential for craftsmanship can be found in many skilled jobs in the information economy. Whether you're a writer, marketer, consultant, or lawyer, your work is craft, and if you hone your ability and apply it with respect and care, then like the skilled wheelwright, you can generate meaning in the daily efforts of your professional life. Honestly, I think that last sentence or two was really what hit home for me and made me want to share this on the craft. Just this idea that whether you're a lawyer or a music producer, your work is craft. If you're doing things with care, there's this intrinsic value there. There's this meaning that you can find in making things that are excellent and valuable and not just because they're efficient or they make money, but they're beautiful and they make people's lives better and they leave the world better than you found it. Um, I think that inspired me and encouraged me to pursue deep work and to keep working hard to push myself to grow. Yeah, that's powerful. I think the connection between work 
in meaning. I mean, that lends itself so much to even that connection between the sense of sacredness to it, right? Deep work is work that, I don't know, we're engaging in something that's fundamentally human, right? We're, we're engaging in a world of meaning where things are beautiful and things can be good and things can make things better, right? We're, we're engaging in a world of social interactions. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're engaging in a world of morality. Like all of those things are happening in our work. And so it should have a sense of weight to it, and there should be that meaning in your daily efforts. And I think deep work seems to me to be trying to um, cultivate the practices and habits that help you engage that more. Yes. Highly recommend it. Go get a copy, read it, and let us know what you think, or just enjoy this summary, and hopefully this has been a good uh, representation of Newport's ideas. And I think that's it. Uh, Do you have any more thoughts? I think that's good. Let's call that book review number one. All right. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to The Craft with Carter and Colby, where we share what we're learning about the creative process. If you're a writer, music producer, marketer, filmmaker, photographer, or you just love creativity, then this show is for you. Our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewelldesign.com. That's Elizabeth n-e-w-e-l-l design.com and you can follow her on instagram at elizabeth is a designer if you like the show there's three things you can do to help us out first subscribe so you learn when we post new episodes second send the link to one of your friends who you think would enjoy the show uh really word of mouth is going to be the the number one way we grow the show in any way and three if you have a topic you want us to cover or feedback about how we can improve the show or comments on what we've said, you can respond to heycraftpodcast at gmail.com, H-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.